Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Today for New Zealand Sporting History, we're going back to November 1982 when New Zealand was gripped by the story of two climbers stuck on Auraki Mount Cook. We probably weren't calling it Auraki Mount Cook back then, at least in the mainstream media. They were sheltering in an ice crevice. They were sheltering in an ice crevice for 14 days. And the blizzard raged on. One helicopter crashed in an attempt to rescue them. And at one point, no one could say whether the men were alive or not. To pick up the gripping tale, Mark Ingalls, ONZM, mountaineer, scientist, and internationally awarded winemaker, joins us. He was one of those two men trapped on Mount Cook in 1982. Hi, Mark. Afternoon, Jesse. How are you? Good. Lovely to have you on. Thank you for your time today. Gosh, just 23 years old, an adventure for anyone and terrifying for anyone, I'm sure. But for a 23-year-old, that must have been, well, obviously a life-defining moment. Yeah, I guess it was. Um, you know, I always say I've got my gold standard for change, you know, and that was on Christmas Eve of 1982, you know, because at 9 o'clock in the morning, that was when I had both legs amputated. And I'd have to say that the best person to ever have their legs amputated is probably a 23-year-old young mountaineer. Really? You know, because you've you've spent your life, you know, to get to where you are. You know, I've been climbing since I was 12 years old, you know, seriously, since I was 15 or 16. And you you put yourself in a position where, you know, if you don't do something right, you know, you, you might die. And so... A double amputation, well, that's just, you know, it's another mountain, another mountain, mm. um, you know, it's it's another route to climb, really. And so it's that you take that attitude into it and, you know, that's that was the, the, the real gift that, that probably Phil and I both had was that we'd been climbing since a young age and it, it just gives you that attitude to, to take things on. Yeah, Phil Dill was your co-climber and um, you've said before he was sort of... Um... He's the strong, silent type. He's probably the, the less famous name among your duo, but you went through it together. Had you climbed Mount Cook before when you attempted it in 1982? Yes, yeah, several times, you know, and we weren't even planning on going to the summit. We were just planning on going to, to Middle Peak. You know, um, quite often when you're climbing these mountains many times, you once you've done one summit, you don't necessarily have to go to the summit anymore because you're, you're climbing a route on the mountain. You know, and for us, it was to whip up the East Ridge, get to Middle Peak, whip down a few abseils off uh, Port Coal, and we would have been home free. But, um, you know, obviously that didn't happen. Now, what did happen? Well, we topped out and, and, you know, we knew we had a 24-hour weather window and, you know, we had to get back for work. It was, um, you know, the timing was tight. We were climbing light and fast. We struck some pretty difficult ice going up the East Ridge, so it took us a lot longer than, you know, that, than our concept of just running up it. Um, and so when we stuck our nose over the top at about six in the evening, we realised that the weather report was, was 12 hours out. 
And so the, the weather, the big front coming across the Tasman Sea was slamming into Cook and we'd been climbing up in the lee, you know, and so we didn't realise the wind was as bad as it was. But we did realise that we couldn't climb down the way we'd come up. It would have taken too long. And so we just had to try and get down the, the summit ridge for, I don't know, just um, 150 metres perhaps, 200 metres, 300 metres. And, and a few abseils, we would have been home free, but the, the wind just absolutely nailed us. And I guess anyone that plays in the, in the mountains in New Zealand or, or at sea, in fact, you know, it's the wind that's the, the king. It's, it'll suck the heat out of your body, hypothermia, or, or up on top of cook, it'll just blow you straight off. So you got to get out of the wind, and, you know, and that's what we did. Were you scared as that front came in and as your options dwindled? Oh, it was um, too busy to be scared as we started going down. The, the, the real fear, I, I guess, that um, sort of came in on us was when we were about um, just down onto the wee shoulder underneath the middle peak, and, and we knew that we had to get out of the wind immediately because it was, you know, it was just sucking the life out of you. And you know, luckily the middle peak bergschrund, the crevasse that's always there, you know, we found a wee hole in it and crawled in. You know, and as soon as you did that, you know, your, your fear drops away because you're out of the wind. But then I, I guess over the, the ensuing days and, and uh, you know, in fact, weeks, um, it, it's a roller coaster of, of fear and confidence of. But, you know, that's what you train for. You know, to, mm. I think the reason that Phil and I survived longer than anyone else ever has is really because of, of our knowledge, our training. You know, we were search and rescue mountaineers. We were the, we were the guys that rescued everyone else. So, if we didn't know what to do, no one did. But probably even more importantly, as we had one hundred percent total faith in the team. You know, we knew we would be rescued. Our only job was really to stay alive. Gosh, what do you mean by an ice crevice? What are we picturing here? The crevasse, the the, the Bergschrund, the crevasse um, up there, it's a split in the ice when the because ice doesn't bend very much um, when it goes um, when it needs to move, it, it splits, and so all of those glaciers that you see are covered in crevasses. But right up high, just under a peak, will be the first crevasse, the Bergschrund, and that's where the ice splits away and starts moving downhill. But it's constantly changing; it's being topped up and. And in Middle Peak Boogs Run, the crevasse that's there, um, years earlier, um, a group had sheltered in it um, for for several days before being rescued. When we went by, there was just a hole in the ice about, oh, I don't know, um, um, just like a wee tunnel that you could crawl through. And there was an area about the size of, of underneath a desk uh, in there. And that was um, that was our home for the next um, 324 hours. Oh for some people, I would say myself included, even the idea of squeezing into that in uh, in stormy weather would be freaky enough, let alone staying there and making a life there. But but as you say, that's something that you were used to doing. You, you knew what the right thing to do was. Um, how prepared were you for 14 days of survival? <laughs> totally unprepared, Jesse, totally unprepared. We were climbing light and fast, you know. When we crawled into Middle Peak Berg's Run, at, at, um, or as we called it, Middle Peak Hotel, at, at <laughs> about seven, 7 that evening, we had five Shrewsbury biscuits, a, um, a wee sachet, a raro, I think a small can of peaches perhaps. Come on. And that was that was all the food that we had. 
and and so we knew we had to get out of there and every day we tried every every few hours we'd try and get out one of us would be laying inside the other would crawl out onto the slope and you get flipped around like like a kite and you crawl back in you know and then a few hours later you'd try again and then after about three days we started to get frostbite in our big toes then after five days, um, because we had no calories, you know, when you're lying dead still at, you know, at, at minus 20 or minus 10, you're, you're burning the same number of calories as a rider on the, the Tora Southland, GC. So, you know, 6,000 calories a day. So, you know. Really? Your body's as, trying to hit, using them, trying to heat you up, is it? Yeah, yeah. The, the um, As good as a Shrewsbury is, half a Shrewsbury doesn't cut the mustard, oh, really. So. No. Well, I went in there at seventy-one kgs, and I came out at thirty-nine. So, come on, you know, um, it's 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 your body um, working to keep you alive, yeah. you know. And we knew, and so we also knew that after the fifth day, we couldn't climb out ourselves, and so all we could do was to do everything we could right to to stay alive until we were rescued. You had a radio. No, we didn't have a radio until the seventh day, and in the, oh. the evening. In the evening of the seventh day, the weather cleared, or the cloud cleared. The people at the bottom could see where I'd put, I'd screwed my helmet, um, I put an ice screw and put my helmet on just outside of the ice cave because it was blowing so hard. I knew it wouldn't get covered up. And you can see, you can see Middle Peak Hotel from the the front deck of the um, of the Hermitage. You know, there's a big set of um, uh, binoculars there. You can look really, through. yeah. You can look straight. You can look straight in the front door. You know. Um, and so we knew that as soon as it cleared, people would know we were there because everyone knew us so well. Um, they knew that we weren't dead around the bottom, so we were probably hiding there. And as soon as the weather cleared, the wind stayed up. And so Ron Small did this amazing piece of um, flying in his squirrel, his helicopter, Hotel Whiskey Whiskey. And and they were able to they weren't able to rescue us um, right then and there, but they were able to drop us a bag. And in that bag, it had a sleeping bag. Um, it had a wee bit of food. It had uh, a, a primus to try and melt some water because it was renal failure that was killing us really. Um, but it also had a radio. It had a two-way radio and also a little transistor. Two-way radio lasted about eighteen or twenty-four hours. Before the batteries went flat, that um, you know, I probably left it on um, in the hope that um, we'd hear that that they were coming to get us. Yeah. But the little transistor uh, that worked because every evening and um, they'd send a message to us via Radio Scenic Land, so it was tuned to that, and so we could listen in um, every night to hear what was going to happen the next day. That's pretty special. Did you? Is that the plan, or did you just? You, they told you they can do that with the two way. Yeah, that was the um, um, everything was done on the fly. You know, this was all uh, new territory to all of us. You know, both to to Phil and I, to the people down the bottom. Uh, it was um, and, and the real worry. You know, the thing that Phil and I worried about the whole time was that someone would get hurt or killed trying to get us. The whole reason, you know, we were part of the professional search and rescue team at Mount Cook. You know, we were some of New Zealand's first professional athletes. We were professionals because we could make the right decisions. We didn't have that emotional connect when you that that can perhaps trip yeah. you up, you know, in search and rescue, you know. But lo and behold, um, I had to be rescued by my own search and rescue team, you know. So it was um, there was a lot of emotion involved as well. Well, tell me about the air force attempts to rescue you. 
Well, they weren't um, coming to rescue us. They were coming up. They were using the Iroquois because the Iroquois didn't operate very well um, right up at the top of Mount Cook. It was used to ferry people in and out of um, of an area on the Empress Shelf, which was sort of directly below us, um, perhaps um, 500 or 600 metres below us. And it was a, it's a um, big snow and ice shelf, and they'd built a sort of a forward basin there, a, a huge big snow cave. Uh, up in Middle Peak Hotel, we couldn't make a snow cave because it was hard, hard ice, so you couldn't dig in. But down below, they were in the snow, and they built this huge, big sort of forward base, and they were flying uh, fresh staff and our, my own search and rescue team in when um, it turned upside down and landing, and it landed on, on its um, nuts. So um, phenomenally, no one was injured, really. And, you know, um, and in fact, they, they pulled the helicopter off, a, you know, a few weeks later, and I've actually um, been privileged to be at Ohakia and actually see it fly again um, in the years gone by. So, you know, you know, us Kiwis, we can rebuild anything, huh. uh, including uh, Phil and I. After you'd, after you'd got that drop of some supplies, did you feel at that point that the hardest part was over? Totally. You know, that the last six and a half days in that ice cave was far harder than the first seven because you have that expectation of rescue that they even put Anne on the radio, you know, which in some ways might have been good, you know, if we weren't going to survive. But, um, it, you know, it's like, eh, you're late for work, you know. It's um, <laughs> so, and it takes away your focus. Um, you, know, you know, you have to really work hard to keep that focus that your job is to stay alive and, you know, to do everything. Um, Phil and I were just so lucky because we were so different you know, we wouldn't have normally climbed together. The reason we were climbing was to get to know each other because we were going to be partnered up for the summer. And so, um, you know, we, we were, we're quite different. And so that really helps, you know, because you can bounce things backwards and forwards between each other to try and make sure that you, you make the right decision. You know, and that's the, that's the sign of the ultimate team, really, isn't it? And you're fighting a physical battle at this stage as well as a psychological, emotional battle, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, we had severe frostbite, you know, our feet had frozen, or in fact, probably um, what was worse was when we got the sleeping bags that allowed us to survive without hypothermia, our feet would, probably went through freeze-thaw cycles, so that was the death knell for our feet. In the last probably three or four days, um, or certainly the last three days, uh, last two days, I, I'd got a chest infection as well, and you're starting to get a bit delirious, so... Yeah, the, everything sort of adding up. So to, to be rescued on that morning of the 29th of November um, in the early hours of the morning, you know, that's that really was a lifesaver. Sounds like that cold front lasted a while. Well, we had the luck to climb into the uh, longest spell of bad weather in New Zealand history, mate. Really? It, was, um, it was the start of El Nino, really, in New Zealand. And so the weather pattern changed because normally it's a nor'wester followed by a, a southerly and then you have clear still air for a day or two, then a nor'wester followed by a southerly. And those southerlies never came. Um, it just stayed westerly. But luckily, um, a matter of hours after we were rescued, the weather came in again and went bad for 19 days. Can you tell me about the yeah. rescue day? I'm, if you've just tuned in, by the way, I'm talking to Mark Ingalls um, about that period in 1982 when he was stuck in a crevasse with a fellow climber and 14 days later, if you can imagine it, they are rescued. And what happens that day? 
Uh, well, we knew from the little transistor radio that they were going to make an attempt and if the weather was clear in the morning. And so Phil and I just prepared ourselves. Um, and, you know, it was in the early hours and just after daylight, you could hear the helicopter above the wind had dropped. Um, Don Bogey was on the end of the fixed drop, uh, a, a system that, in fact, um, I helped invent. So I got to be the first person to be actually um, rescued <laughs> yeah. by it. So that was Great. lucky in the many ways. Um, yeah. And so, and Don was able to crawl into the little ice cave, um, uh, put me into what we call a Bowman bag, which is just a, a like a soft um, envelope, flipped me on and, and we popped out and was able to be lifted off and taken down. Um, then he, he flew back up um, and was able to clip um, Phil in and bring Phil down to the Empress shelf. We both sort of um, got into the helicopter and, flew down uh to the park headquarters and you know it was like seeing bogey's face it looks like father christmas you know and it felt like christmas day really we we got put out onto um sitting up you know there's no way we were going to lie down you know we're pretty stubborn and so they allowed us to sit up on the stretches from the helicopter pad into the park headquarters and we could see a lot of people around you know and so we were wondering you know what's the story and so we spent a few hours or um, quite a bit of the day in the park headquarters as they as we were being assessed before we were loaded into an ambulance and, and driven to uh, Christchurch. Sitting up still, um, I'd have to say. You know, we'd had a banana zap, a banana milk. Um, <laughs> we'd, um, uh, they wouldn't let us have a beer, um, you know, much to our chagrin. Um, <laughs> so was... And my wife wasn't there. She was waiting in, in Christchurch, um, waiting at Burwood for when we arrived. But all of our friends were there, you know, um, all of my mountaineering friends, you know, the, the whole search and rescue team. And we came to, started to come to understand that it had been a bit of a big thing. You know, we hadn't even thought about it. We hadn't thought about the, the fact that all New Zealand was uh, focusing on it. And it wasn't until we made the ambulance stop in Fairley on the way to Christchurch and buy us um, a Christchurch Star, you know, the afternoon paper at the time. And on the front page there's this big picture of a of a snow cave you know uh, Ingalls and Dool rescued and it had this big picture of a mountain craft snow cave cave and we both looked at each other and thought gee I wish we were in that you know <laughs> yeah we, we were in a hole that we couldn't sit up in and couldn't lie down and you know it was like um and so that's when we really sunk in and when we got to Burwood you know that the tv cameras and everything was there you know um Thankfully, Anne and and Lucy, my daughter, who was ten months old at the time, uh, were, were there. Uh, and then the, the sort of the long process of uh, of recovery started. Really, just out of interest, when Don shows up in the crevasse, did you know that was coming that day, or was it suddenly just a face? No, no, we were, and we were all prepared, waiting for him. Yeah, we'd okay. heard on the on the, yeah. the radio the night before. So, you know, you know, we're search and rescue professionals. You know, we were trying to do as much as we could to, to yeah. self-rescue um, and to get get ourselves ready, okay. yeah. Were you in pain? No, frostbite's a funny old thing. Um, it's insidious because once it goes numb, you forget about it. And But the, the, the pain comes with the, um, ed, um, the edema, the swelling behind the frozen part as your body's trying to push, it, um, push its way into it. And then as um, as it thaws out, then it becomes this insidious uh, thing, sort of a mix between tingling, stinging, and throbbing. 
um, and it just sort of gets worse and worse and worse. It's never super painful, but it's con- absolutely continuous and it's very difficult pain to to um, to work with. You know, to have your legs off is a real uh, relief. Well, tell me about that. When did you get that news and, and what was your reaction? Well, we were watching our feet rot. You know, Phil and I thought that we'd lo- we knew we'd lose our toes, so we, we were hoping that they'd chop them off early and we, uh, we'd be back at Mount Cook um, by Christmas to start <laughs> climbing again. <laughs> so, an occupational hazard for mountaineers, you know. So, yeah. But the, it came rapidly to understand that, you know, so much of our feet had been so severely damaged and then they got gangrene. Um, and so we had to battle with very, very strong antibiotics. You know, this is 1982, so... Um, the the instruments that they were able to use were pretty blunt, really, and so they were doing a lot of liver damage and and the likes, and so we we rapidly came to understand that we were going to have to have our feet off, but then to understand that you have to have them all five and a half inches, one hundred and forty millimeters below the knee, you know that that was a feral shock, but we had time to um to reconcile it. So by the time Christmas Eve that morning came along. It was it was just just cut them off and let us get out of here. You know, it was it really was that there is no choice. So if there's no choice, then let's deal with it. You had a pretty good doctor by the sounds of things. Good at setting your expectations. Yeah, we had lots of very very good people in in Burwood in 1982. Stu Sinclair, um, Sally Registrar. Um, one of the other registrars came in and he stood at the end of the bed and he said, you know, in a few days you're going to have your legs off, you know, and I know you're in a rush to get going. But just remember it's going to take six months before, you know, you can really um, do what you need to do. And it's going to be a couple of years before you can really understand how much more you can do. And that was pretty much on the money, you know. Um, even though um, we were only 11 weeks in hospital in total, and then I was back at Mount Cook, um, you know, as a double amputee, um, um, duty ranger, really. And so it was it was very quick, but we were in a hurry. And the frustration from then onwards, and has always been, in fact, you know, I've just got a new set of legs that I'm um, trying to break in at the moment. And it's just never as, nothing's fast enough, Jesse. You know, it's um, every now and then you just have to stop and look behind and see how far you've come just to make sure that, you know, that you're motoring along. And so, well, spoiler you know, alert, spoiler alert, it didn't slow you down or perhaps it slowed you down, but you ended up achieving more than you might have achieved otherwise, including Everest in 2006, the first double amputee to achieve that. Um, I want to make sure we have some time at the end of our chat to talk about your charity, Limbs for All, because I know how important it is uh, to you. Can you tell me a bit about it? Sure. It's, um, when I was on Everest, actually, I raised um, around about $70,000. And to, to be able to manage that, Anne and I set up Limbs for All. I'd been working in Cambodia with um, the amputees, but more importantly with the School of Prosthetics, with the, the new young prosthetists um, over there, thanks to the Cambodia Trust in New Zealand. Um, that's transformed into what they call Exceed now, Exceed Worldwide. In 2019, we discovered, we'd built rebuilt limb centres and do all the usual things, but in 2019, we discovered that the, 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 the all support for youth with disabilities and schooling in Cambodia had been pulled. And so we needed, somebody needed to step in. And so in, in partnership with Exceed, 
uh, we stepped in. And so we've um, been at it for four years, uh, almost five years now. We've still got another year and a half to go. So far, we've invested uh, $65,000 in the program, and we've put um, 1,041 uh, young disabled, uh, young people with a disability through the through the process and we provide them with the uniforms with um gosh uh, with, with everything really with all this stationery uh, um, a tablet during covid because they couldn't go to school so they needed to do it online uh, a bike if they need one to get to school we provide the school with a help to um, make it accessible make it inclusive and then we also support the family as well with um with cash you know about 20 us dollars a month and we've got 220, um, and I was just over there in December, actually, um, giving out the um, at the start of the new school year. And it's, it's just so humbling to, you know, the one thing I've always understood is that um, to get a million dollar smile, um, you only have to invest a few dollars. And that's the, um, that's the essence of it. Is it too tough a question to ask you what, what you learnt? From that experience and what you've learned in your life since then? Oh, we can always do far more than we can ever think that we could do. You know, it's that, uh, what's that T.S. Eliot quote? Um, um, basically, you never know how much you can do until you actually try. And that's the, the real essence. The, the essence is that, um, you know, I always say, you know, attitude determines your altitude in life, and that's very much it. And attitude is absolutely critical. All my corporate work that I do in, in India and and other places around the world, it's all around the attitude to change because that's the really defining thing. And once you understand the power of attitude, then that's the thing that's enabled both Phil and I to to really do the things. You know, Phil's climbed more mountains than I have. He's been president of the New Zealand Alpine Club. You know, once a climber, always a climber, Jesse. But also it's that understanding that you can take the lessons that you learnt on a mountain or even, in fact, in an ice cave and apply it to the rest of life. And hopefully that's um, the, the lessons I, I help share around the world. That sounded good when I said it, but I should check with you that that's true. Have you achieved more, do you think, through this experience than you might have if you hadn't? Well, unless someone um, um, waves a magic wand and gives me a set of legs, I, I wouldn't know. Um, no. If you ask all my climbing friends, they'll say Ingalls is still the lippy, um, you know, cheeky, you know, um, attention deficit person he's always been. Hmm. Um, but what I've been given, I think, Jesse, is a whole range of different opportunities that I, I perhaps wouldn't have found otherwise. But and by the same token, you know, I've lost a lot of friends in the mountains. A lot of people haven't survived. It's a it's a very dangerous sandpit to play in. And so um, in many ways, I guess the answer to that is yes, but it's because of the opportunities that um, that that it's created. Pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, Jesse. It's our weekly series on New Zealand sporting history. This week, talking to Mark Ingalls about that period in 1982 and his life since. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.